Welcome back to the Powell Butte Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the lead pastor here at Powell Butte Christian Church in beautiful uh, central Oregon, Powell Butte. If you're ever in our neck of the woods, we'd love to have you join us uh, for a service on uh, the weekend. We got uh, a cowboy church on Saturday night and then three services on Sunday morning. And they all vary in their uh, music styles that we do, uh, some contemporary, some more modern, some traditional. And so it's kind of neat that uh, people can find their niche uh, at our services. And I'd love to uh, meet people that have been listening to us on the podcast. Yeah, you know, uh, so we're still in Luke and uh, we're kind of rounding out the last week of Jesus before the cross. And um, I'm hoping to hit resurrection uh, on the resurrection Sunday. So that's kind of where our pacing is. There's a lot of stuff that happens between the triumphal entry and the triumphal resurrection. And uh, and so there's going to be uh, quite a few weeks dedicated to those uh, two, uh, in, in between those two events. Anyway, today uh, we are in Luke chapter 20. So if you want to grab your Bible and go there. You know, I've often become um, increasingly uh, fascinated by the response to Jesus by the religious leaders of his time. You know, we speak often, and at times we speak disparagingly of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, of the chief priests and the uh, scribes, the teachers of the law, because they, they opposed Jesus so many times in the Gospels. And that's why I'm fascinated, because actually my fascination is twofold. Uh, I'm fascinated, first of all, because these were the men who had devoted their entire lives to study God's Word, to study the Law and the Prophets. They were supposed to have been the, the so-called experts in theology, right? These were the shepherds that God had designed to lead his people into a right relationship with himself. And yet, and this is what fascinates me, they get it so wrong. These are the ones who missed the visitation of the Messiah, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, dwelling amongst them. I wonder, because I can't believe that they just woke up one day and thought, hey, we're going to be jerks. Hey, we're going to get God's word wrong, right? I, I get the sense that like so many other people who live in error, they probably started out right, good, with great intentions. They probably started out wanting to be good leaders of God's people. And yet somewhere along the line, somewhere along the, the pathway, something happened that knocked them off kilter. And they end up actually opposing the very Messiah that they were preparing the people to receive. So that fascinates me. But secondly, what fascinates me is I am a present-day religious leader. At one point in my life, I felt a call from God to go into full-time ministry. I've devoted over 30 years of my life to that call. I love studying his word. I enjoy helping people grow deeper in their relationship with him. I take the call to spiritual leadership very, very seriously. It's, it's a sacred call. But I have to be careful because obviously there have been so many other people who started down the same road that I started down who eventually got knocked off kilter as well, who got it wrong. Starting in Jesus' time, actually starting in the Old Testament, and even to this day, just because I say that I want to work for God and that I am doing his work involved in his ministry doesn't mean that I am not immune to being thrown off my game as well. What happened to the religious leaders of Jesus' time, that could happen to me. I got to be very, very careful about that. 
what happened in the, the in Jesus' time with the religious leaders, it could happen, by the way, to you. What might be something that happens to you or me could lead some us to some very wrong conclusions and decisions about our life. Okay? So we're going to be in Luke chapter 20, like I said. And and I want to I want to look at what happened. Why it was that the religious leaders were so opposed to Jesus and how I can avoid also in my life opposing him as well. Um, we're going to be looking at a parable called the parable of the tenants. That's basically in the middle of this whole uh, narrative. But before we get into the parable, I want to show you the context in which the parable is going to be told. So we're starting in verse 1. Actually, yeah, in, in verse 1. Um, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you, you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say it's from heaven, then he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say for man, then all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, the context is that these these men, these religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. Now, what had just happened, what they were actually probably questioning was something that we looked at about a month ago. After Jesus enters into the city with that triumphal procession, he makes his way into the temple, and there he sees the people misusing the place of worship for their own gain. What's happening is people are bringing in um, money to buy uh, animals to make their sacrifices to be made right with God, and yet they're bringing in foreign money, or at least not temple money, and they have to exchange it, and the exchange rate is exorbitant. They're they're getting ripped off. If you could not bring your own animal uh, to sacrifice and you had to buy one there, you were paying way too high of a price for that. And, and, and moreover, they're doing this, the cheating people, in the court of the Gentiles. This is according to Mark's account. Because they would never have thought to take away worship from the Jewish men. There was a part of the temple that was dedicated to the worship for uh, the, the 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 men of Judea, uh, the men of Jerusalem, the the, the uh, uh, Jewish men, and then there was a court that the Gentiles could come into, and it was in that court where they were supposed to be worshiping God, that all of this exchanging of money and cheating was was going on, and, and so Jesus drives them out. He clears them out single handedly. Which, by the way, don't ever think Jesus is a wimp. I hated how he was portrayed back in the 70s as this gaunt, skinny, weak figure. This Here's Jesus taking charge of the temple, single-handedly overthrowing the tables where the money changers were, letting all of the animals go, uh, spilling money all over the place, and, and it's chaos, and nobody stops him. Don't Don't believe for one minute that Jesus was a wimp. He was able to do this. He was able to confront their sin, and nobody could do anything about that. So that's what happened when he came into the city. 
So we presume, scholars presume, that it's the very next day that he goes back to the temple, and now he is questioned by the authorities there in the temple. By whose authority did you do that? They're, they're pretty mad, and they want to know who gave you the right to do that. You, you see, they had been given authority over the temple. Uh, first of all, in the Old Testament, God put the priests and the Levites in charge of tabernacle worship and then finally temple worship. But more so, about 25 years prior to these events, the Roman government had established their authority. They, Rome had put these guys into place with the authority over the temple, and they were also charged to, to keep the peace there in Israel uh, so that Rome didn't have to expend a lot of um, time, energy, money uh, to put down rebellions. They were in charge. They had been given authority both by their scriptures and by the government. So here's Jesus now coming to them and essentially taking over. And they were demanding here to see his credentials. In other words, they were saying, who died and put you in charge? Their, their, their implication is, obviously, we didn't give you this authority because we're still around. We haven't died. We're still in charge. So the question is betraying their jealousy, their anger. But it's also a trap because if they can get Jesus to outright claim authority over the temple— then they could make trouble for him within the Roman government. So Jesus saw through this plan, and instead of answering them directly, he asked them a question, a question about the authority of John the Baptist, his baptism. Okay, He had done all of his ministry of baptizing people, calling them to repentance apart from the temple system. So Jesus asked him, okay, so here's John outside of your temple system, baptizing people, calling them to repentance. Under whose authority is he operating? Okay. And as they began to debate how to answer him, they, they realized that they were stuck. Because if they said that his authority came from God, well, then they didn't believe that. And uh, they're going to be uh, then nailed to the wall by saying, well, if you believe that his authority came from God, why didn't you believe him? But if they say that, well, his authority came from man, then they're going to upset the people that they are in charge of because the people believed John to be one of those prophets. And there they would be um, mistreating one of the prophets again, right? So they say, we can't answer you. So Jesus says, fair enough. You don't answer me. I won't answer you. Now, please note, this is a power struggle over the idea of authentic authority. The religious leaders had been given authority, and they were not about to give that authority up, no matter how authentic the authority of Jesus looks or seems, no matter what he does or says. Now, to, to call attention to this fact, then, about authority, about this power struggle going on, Jesus tells them the parable, starting in verse 9. Verse 9 says, He began to tell them this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it, let, lent it, out, let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. 
Then the owner of the vineyard said, well, what shall I do? Ah, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, remember, when you're reading parables, everything is a representation of something else, right? The character, the places, they represent people. Vineyards, by the way, in biblical times, would always represent the nation of Israel. And the people would totally understand that. It's kind of like if I tell a story about America and use an eagle as the illustration. People would say, oh, yeah, eagle, America. Well, the Jews would say, ah, vineyard, God's people, Israel. The man who establishes the vineyard, well, that's obviously God, because he was the one who established the nation of Israel. The tenants who oversee the production of the vineyard, those are the leaders then of God's people. Leaders who had partnered with God um, and, and leaders to whom God gave the task of leading and nurturing and caring and shepherding the people. Then there are the servants who are coming in to check in on the production, the, the fruit production of the vineyard. Uh, wanting some of the, the fruit to bring back to the owner, to check in on the progress. Those are the prophets that God would have sent to check in on the progress of his people, to see if there's any fruit that is coming from his people. And then finally, obviously, the son of the vineyard owner is, would be the son of God, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, you, you see here in this parable that there's an agreement between the owner of the vineyard and the ones tending the vineyard, right? God giving the leaders of his people the responsibility to pastor his people. But if you read the Old Testament, you'll see how wicked the leaders often were. They forgot who owned the vineyard. They assumed the position of power among the people as they became kings or prophets, not prophets, or, or, or priests. And by the way, this is why the prophets were treated so horribly when they did show up. Because they were calling the people into accountability. They were driven out in exile. They were stoned to death. They were thrown into prison. Even in Jesus' time, when John the Baptist was calling Herod into accountability for his own sin. Here's Herod, who, by the way, was the king of the Jews, but he was the secular king of the Jews. Again, a, a political puppet from Rome. When John called Herod on his sin, he was beheaded. See, leaders at least of God's people, they don't want to give an account. They never wanted to give an account of their leadership because it was ultimately, um, they, they thought that their authority was their authority, that nobody should ask them, question them. You can't question the authority when I'm in control um, because it was really on them that there was no fruit being found in the vineyard. So it's apparent, this glaring problem, that the, the leaders don't want to be confronted. Uh, in the book of Acts, when Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, 
was preaching. He confronted them. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, just like your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? By the way, in calling them to accountability, Stephen lost his life. See, people who are in charge, there's a temptation to really believe that you are in charge. And if anybody calls you out on your shortcomings or your sins, it's hard to take. So that's what's going on in this parable. So because the tenants have refused to listen to the servants who are collecting the the fruit, the, the man decides, I want to send my own son, thinking that maybe they'll respect him. After all, he is my true representation, my true representative who bears my true image, who speaks my true heart for the production of this vineyard. So they've got to respect that, right? But instead of respecting and receiving the son as the owner had hoped, the tenants figure out that if they just get rid of the son, if they just kill him, well, then they would get to own the vineyard forever. Now, obviously, Jesus is foretelling what's going to happen by the end of this week. Those who were serving as leaders of God's people were going to make the decision to kill the one who came from God. They were going to kill the one who was the exact representation of God, of the vineyard owner. Why? Why would they do that? Again, it has to do with authority. See, when Jesus came into the temple and took over, that was a problem because they were supposed to be the ones in authority. They were the ones in charge, and now he was taking over. (laughs) They have no respect for the authority that he claimed. But that's not the only time that they were questioning that. All through this chapter, they're questioning Jesus' authority. Let's jump down to verse twenty. I mean, verses 41 through 44, real quick. Jesus, again, was talking to these guys, and he said to them, um, how can they say that the Christ, this Messiah that you're looking for, is David's son, his descendant? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he then his son? Now, let me explain What's going on here? You see, the Jewish leaders, they they knew this passage. They knew that the scriptures foretold that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David, that he would be his son, his descendant, okay? And would be great, but not as great as King David, because he would have come after him. He would have been a descendant. David would have been the greater one. Now, Jesus is quoting, again, Psalm 110. And his point is, is though David was talking about the Messiah being his descendant, being his son, there's an acknowledgement here in David's mind of the superiority, the authority of the Messiah, even greater than the one who is sitting on the throne. Why is the Messiah greater? Because David realized that when I was ruling on my throne, the Messiah was watching the Messiah was there. Of course, the Messiah is greater because the, the, the Messiah supersedes David, came before David, and will be there after David. But apparently, these guys missed that. They missed the fact that when the Messiah comes, any man-made structure is going to be superseded by God's authority, by God's authority. Therefore, since the Messiah would come from God, 
the Messiah's authority would trump these religious leaders' authority. And that's going to be a problem for them. They don't want to give up ruling and being in charge. Now, in this last week of of Jesus' life before the cross, you're going to see uh, their opposition ramping up because they're panicking. They're grasping at straws. They reject so much of his authority because they were feeling threatened. They questioned his credentials. They questioned the perspective of his uh, idea, his perspective on eternal life. Uh, now let's look back at verses 37 through 30. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 27 through 33. There came some Sadducees, who those who deny there is a resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, here's a scenario. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, died without children. The second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? Because the seven all had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And then at that point, some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, and they no longer dared to ask him any question. So the the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They thought you got one shot in life, so make it good. And because once you die, that's it. So they had no respect for Jesus' authority when he spoke about eternal life. To them, it was ridiculous. So they're trying to trap him in this silly scenario of, of, of a, a woman who was married to seven guys. And then they asked, okay, sir, um, this scenario is silly because we believe that the premise of eternal life is silly. So Jesus answers them. And, and by the way, in the account that Matthew has, we see an even sharper rebuke. He says, you, you are in error, he says in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, because you don't know the scriptures. <laughs> Ouch. Talk about confrontational, right? God's spokespeople. Here they were, God's spokespeople. They have rejected the Messiah, and Jesus says, you're rejecting me and my perspective on eternal life because you don't even know the scriptures that you claim to know so well. So going back to this, Jesus then uh, explains the absurdity of their scenario because, first of all, there's not going to be any marriage in heaven, and he explains that, right? There's not going to be any marriage in heaven. Why? Well, the simple answer is this. Marriage was given to mankind for our physical life here on earth. Uh, It's a gift from God because that gift was supposed to illustrate the relationship that God wanted to have with us. We see it in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God uses the imagery of he's the husband and we are the bride, we are the wife. And and, and husbands and wives then, they are to be reflecting the, the, the picture of God's love for his people and the people's commitment to following after their God. 
So if it's a picture, if marriage is a picture of God's relationship with us, then when you get to heaven and you actually have a face-to-face relationship with God, you don't need the picture anymore, right? That's why you're not going to be married in heaven. But more importantly than setting the, the record straight about marriage, Jesus is setting the record straight about life in eternity. See, it's not the fact that there's not going to be a marriage. The fact is, is there, that there is an eternity, right? <laughs> Just like Jesus was claiming. And in that eternity, Jesus, again, according to the scriptures, Jesus will be Lord. He will have authority over the heavens and the earth in eternity. At his ascension, God gave him authority over all things, including eternal life. So how does Jesus bring this marriage question back to the question of eternal life? Well, he reminds them that God, in the burning bush there with Moses, identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, this is after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died. And Jesus' point is, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's still their God. And if they're not alive here on earth, then they must be alive someplace else for him to be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Hopefully that makes sense. But here, here's, the, here's the deal with the Sadducees. If Jesus is right about eternal life, then their error, their misunderstanding of the Scripture is going to be exposed. And that makes them so mad, so mad to think that Jesus is coming to be the king that they foolishly plot to kill the one who is going to be king. Dum da dum dum. So back to the parable and the debrief. Jesus says, then what will the owner do to the tenants who have killed his son? He's going to come and destroy the tenants and he's going to give the, the vineyard to others. Now, the people would have understood and been fairly surprised at Jesus' confrontational language here. Because he's saying that God is going to take his people away from the religious leader's authority. And to them, that was unheard of. And the religious leaders are saying, no way would God allow that to happen. No way would he allow Israel or its leaders to be destroyed. And yet, we, as we studied last week in 70 AD, just about 40 years later, the temple and the city will be destroyed. And over a million Jews died. And the blood, I believe, of those people will be on the hands of the leaders of God's people. So what? So what? Now here we come to the conclusion of what it means to you and I today. All of these places that Jesus' authority is being questioned. Jesus finishes this parable and his teaching off by saying, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, this is about the authority, the ultimate authority that Jesus will wield. When it comes to seeing who is truly in charge, there's a danger when we cannot see what the true reality is. It's kind of like playing hide-and-seek in the dark, and you don't know where you're going, and you can trip, and you can run into walls, and you can do all of these horrible things because you're trying to run away, and, and, and it's, it's in the dark, and you can't find it. You're going to run into the rock, 
and you're going to be smashed to pieces. Or that rock will fall on you because you oppose it and you will be crushed. Here's my concern. How many of us in our own lives reject the authority of Jesus in everyday practical ways? Yes, we claim to have faith. We participate in worship. We, we uh, get involved in ministries. But when it comes to the way that we actually live our life, the choices that we make as to who we will listen to, who we're going to follow, the times that we decide that though we know what Jesus said, we want to do it this other way, then do our lives truly reject or reflect? Do, do we reject the authority of Jesus or do we reflect the confession that we made with our mouth that Jesus is Lord? How many of us have formulated our own watered-down ideas of eternal life rather than paying attention to the clear teaching of Jesus? Like the one found in John 3, that in order to inherit eternal life, you must be born again of water and of spirit. Or the one found in John 14, that no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. How many of us over time have learned to ignore the promptings of, of God's Holy Spirit, the convictions that we feel and, and our consciousnesses then become dull and desensitized, and we don't respond then uh, to the conviction that comes into our life. You know, I, I've talked about this before, but one of the biggest sins that Christians often make is, I know that the Bible says this, but that's one of the most insidious sins that we could ever commit, because we are blatantly taking over the throne again. Uh, we are crowning ourselves with false authority. All the while, we deny Jesus the true authority that was given to him by the Father in our life. And if we don't go to that cornerstone and build our lives on that cornerstone, it will be the stone that crushes us with its authority. See, Jesus warns us that there are serious consequences to rejecting his authority. It didn't play out well for Jerusalem and its leaders, and it won't play out well for us either. As we end today, I I just got to ask, Does Jesus have authority, true authority, in your life? Or are you still in a power struggle? We live in a culture that questions authority. Many of us, for many of us, we don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told how to do something or when to do something. You know, back in the 1960s, people were encouraged to question authority, right? Civil disobedience was seen on college campuses and at public gatherings, I think it's so interesting to hear a child in a power struggle fall back to the old. Who died and put you in charge? Who died and put you in charge? Well, in Jesus' case, the answer is clear. He did. He died. And because of his death, he defeated our death. And God put him in charge of everything. Are you willing to accept that? Living under Jesus' authority has implications to every area of life. Because when I live under his authority, I don't get to ask what's in it for me. I don't get to ask, well, when is it my turn to to rule, to get my way? Rather, I have submitted myself to faithfully serve the one who is willing to go to the cross to die as the payment for my sin and then bought me. And now I serve him. And now I serve him. Today, I'd like for you to just remember the old hymn that made a bold declaration. I I think for many it would be difficult to sing the song with any honesty. But the idea of authority must make us pause and be broken and be willing to say, Have thine 
own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded, and still. All right, well, that's my encouragement to you today, and uh, that's what got the, the leaders into trouble, because they would not acknowledge Jesus' authority. And as a religious leader myself, I must understand that it all comes down to authority. Who's in charge? Who died and put Jesus in charge? Well, Jesus did. And I must live my life in that way as well. Well, God bless you. Hope uh, this week is going to be a good week for you. And uh, again, if you're ever in our neck of the woods, come visit us. You can uh, reach us online at uh, www.palbutechurch.com and see what we're all about. And uh, I thank you for uh, tuning in. I thank Lisa Welly for uh, producing these podcasts. I thank Steve Pittman for being our tech guru. And I thank God that he gave us an opportunity to reach out like this with these messages. God bless you. We'll see you next week.